Welcome to the Church of Mavis Radio Show. It's Friday night. It's 7.06 p.m. Central. You're listening to United Public Radio, 107.7 FM, New Orleans. We got Wham here with us tonight. Hello. 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 We got uh, Stephen Snyder. So how, how, did your, how do we say your Arthur name for everyone? Just uh, S. S. William Snyder is what I got. Yeah, yeah. It's S. William Snyder. I usually do that when I write books. That's a, a little tribute to my dad who really um, brought my passion for reading out. And um, elsewhere, though, you can just call me Recluse. That's what most people know me as. And uh, the book the uh, the book is the art the secret history of cyber conspiratainment and the shattering of reality book one, and it's a great book, and it's like a rabbit hole. The more you read it, the more you're like this is like gonna get me on a watch list. What is this? <laughs> but it's really good. You go deep, man. It's, you're you're deep in it for sure and uh i'm someone who's you know i see mention of some of these agencies you know from our governments and stuff and i'm someone who has had unfortunately interactions with some of those type things like not to get into it too much but i had a ufo sighting that a bunch of people saw with me around an area in georgia and somehow some type of government agency came out to investigate they never came face to face but they showed their vehicles in like a weird way like there was a silent type helicopter over the over the house that made no noise and a guy that looked like top gun that went mockingly and it just went away and it was like they it came out to investigate or maybe the ufos were part of them too i really don't know it was just a lot of weird crap so i know there's all these weird and then of course the bigelow skinwalker ranch that's a whole nother thing i know you get into him some that's just crazy in itself that whole show and all that that's going on just turned into a giant like governmental spook fest. Like that's the the government government spooks there are more scary than the phenomenon. It's so weird. <laughs> but uh, so I guess tell us the start of what got you on this book, the path. Well, it started actually as an attempt to explain the Q phenomenon. This would have been um, back around 2012, 2019, right around uh, when the January 6th events were unfolding. Uh, so I worked on it for several years. It eventually took me all the way across the country. I went to the archives at uh, Hoover at Stanford University, also the archives at the Stanford Library, went to the Carlisle Barracks in Philadelphia, I think a couple of other ones as well. Um, and then I think about maybe two years ago, uh, the book was already up to 150,000 words, and I was about half finished with it. So it became evident that it was not going to fly as one book. And from there, it kind of took some time to figure out how to organize it. But eventually I settled on a trilogy and um, and kind of fleshing out the first book. Um, Edward Lansdale kind of ironically emerged as essentially the protagonist of it. When I had started writing it, I you know kind of thought, well, Lansdale, obviously, if you're going to do Cyborg, you've got to talk a bit about him. But I was like, yeah, it's you know maybe a couple paragraphs or something. And I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll have to do a chapter on the guy. And as I kept digging and finding out more and more stuff about him, it just uh, more stuff kept getting thrown into the book. And eventually, it, uh, as I said before, took me out to Hoover to go through his archives and see what goodies were there. And um, that even added further dynamics to all the stuff that I wanted to explore and really opened up a lot of possibilities with his career that I had never even considered. It just you know became evident to me that this guy was such a pivotal figure in the national security state. 
and the extent of his influences has never really been properly chronicled before. And everything that, you know, there's a place that I have to work at called Before It's News. And I started off there just sharing paranormal type stuff and spiritual stuff. But then the whole, it always had been a little political and definitely right, right leaning. But then the whole Trump thing happened. And basically it's just so crazy. Like I've witnessed all these radio personalities that have kind of that Q, Q connection. And I, I, I've just witnessed it all. And it seems crazy as hell. And just as hard to even keep up in my mind. But uh, one of the weirdest things I see from all of it is like that someone just put up something about basically saying Obama and, you know, the current president were something happened to them, Gitmo tribunals. And then they make up these crazy lists like Adam Sandler's in Gitmo and he's been executed and Tom Hanks. And it's the craziest thing. Like, I'm trying to understand where it even comes from. Now, I know there's a weird place called Real Raw News. I think they just like make up crap like that. I don't know. But it's I know it's got some Q leanings, doesn't it? Some of that weirdness. Some of that just made up crap. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think a lot of that sort of dated back. Well, I mean, the Q stuff, which I'll be getting into in the third book, very much grew out of um, the UFO circles, especially a lot of people around MUFON and what have you. It's an interesting saga with all of that. But I mean, I think in a lot of ways, it sort of reflected the transformation, the ufology, uh, really went through uh, going into the 1980s because prior to that point in time, a lot of the work that had been done on ufology at least strived to some extent to adhere to academic standards. Obviously, it didn't live up to that a lot, but there was at least an attempt to apply the scientific method to chronicling UFO sightings. Whereas when you start getting into the 1980s, this is kind of the, you know, the golden era of the Dulce base and um, Majestic 12, and it all sort of laid the foundation for the rise of, you know, William Cooper and the, the Krill documents and a lot of this other stuff. And at that point, uh, you know, and this is something that I had really had to consider throughout working on this book, is it almost took on the, the form of a kind of performance art. And you could obviously draw parallels even earlier to uh, things like Discordianism and the Illuminatus trilogy, but increasingly this really came to dominate a lot of the UFO field and also a lot of the parapolitical research. I mean, the 80s was kind of the the golden era of parapolitics, para if you will. And from there, it really uh, went into decline going into the 90s. And um, well, it's now sort of certainly kind of, um, well, you can see what yourselves with the uh, rise of Q and a lot of this other stuff. It's uh, definitely been a curious journey to put it mildly. It's definitely crazy <laughs> and scary in a lot of ways. Uh... And then some of the stuff, you know, like I see there, I expect, I guess I always thought most right wing, like Republican Christians were like all pro Israel, but there it's like there's Trump people who hate Israel and they're Jew this, Jew that. And it, like, I guess that confused me. Like, just, I don't, we and William talked about it last week. It's like, it's so complex. It's just almost not even worth talking about. It's so crazy, but just so many opinions i guess with everything in so many different ways but it's weird it's like almost like those lists they put out of executions and stuff it's almost like they're fantasy weird 
you know, smut list or something like, you know, like a fantasy left people. They'd love to see all that happen to those people, you know, uh, Adam Sandler and shackles at Gitmo or whatever the hell reason why they would. But, uh, well, what are some, uh, some other things from the book that you would like to talk about that, you're the, that, you know, embodies the book, book one. Oh, uh, well, um, you know, there's just so much that I got into it, but, um, you know, lot. kind of going back to, uh, well, I think, you know, among some of the really curious things that I had uncovered looking into um, a lot of the research for it, one was really the uh, the extent to which so many alternative cultures have been co-opted by the security services, really going back to almost the dawn of a lot of the Cold War era groups in the 1950s. And this has already been somewhat documented when it came to things like the John Birch Society. Um, I had really focused in on these series of meetings that were held from, I think it was like 1955 to 61, known as the National Military Industrial Conferences. And this brought together a curious cast of characters that were representatives of the DOD, from the National Security Council, from a lot of leading universities and think tanks like Hoover and um, was the Foreign Policy Research Institute at the University of Philadelphia and so forth, and even some representatives from MKUltra. And in the process of these meetings, they were trying to develop a way to inoculate both elites and the public at large with a brand of anti-communism. And to manage this in 1958, they launched a really curious organization known as the Institute of American Strategy, which would really mm -hmm. become at the forefront of the kind of psychological warfare bureau for the U.S. government going into uh, the good old days of the Cold War. So you saw a rash of a lot of these groups emerging around this time. You had the John Birch Society, who was very much connected to this milieu through the um, National Association of Manufacturers. And for those of you unfamiliar with NAM, the National Association of Manufacturers, that's basically the right-wing version of like the Pilgrim Society or the Council on Foreign Relations. It's been around, I think, since 1895. It was always very closely tied to the Republican Party going back to William McKinley's presidency. Very fascinating group, very little remarked upon. The JBS, the John Birch Society, was just absolutely dominated by people from the National Association of Manufacturers. I think something like five or six of the 17 founding members had been president of NAM at one point in their lives. So you had a lot of overlap there. And then you had a lot of other groups that grew out of the these military industrial conferences, the IAS groups like the Liberty Lobby, the World Anti-Communist League, which the American chapter of which was largely taken almost full blown from the Institute of American Strategy. And this really laid the foundation for what we would think of as the conspiracy culture, um, info wars, Alex Jones, all this kind of stuff. Um, and this is things that you know, Stanley Kubrick was already parroting going back to Dr. Strangelove with the obsession with fluoride and what have you that has ravaged yeah. the military and Jack D. Ripper. I mean, essentially, Dr. Strangelove is a mockery slash satire of a lot of the stuff that the Institute was trying to do with the U.S. military and so forth. I mean, when you look at Ripper's base with just the anti-communist slogans plastered all over it, and the same thing with Slim Pickens' airplane, this was exactly what the IS was trying to do. So this has been fairly well known, but the more I had dug into this over the 
years, the more evident it became to me that ufology from very early on was always closely tied uh, to this milieu, uh, going back to what was it, NICAP, the uh, was it the National is it Institute for the Investigation? I always forget this. Um, but anyway, you guys know Kehoe. I'm sure people listening mm -hmm. to this. Um, I mean, there were a lot of links with that group and the American Security Council with the joint membership. And then later on, you even see people like Jacques Vallée turning up in this milieu, which was just absolutely shocking to me. Uh, but one of the figures linked to the Institute for American Strategy was Henry Regnery, uh, the founder and longtime head of Regnery Press. And this is a very conservative publishing house. Its most well-known title is William Buckley's Man, God, and Yale. It's, I think that was the title of it. But um, around the mid-60s, Regnery started publishing a lot of Belay's work, work by J.M. Hynek, and stuff in general that took a really esoteric bent towards ufology. Of course, this is sort of the beginning of Valet's whole concept of the, uh, you know, the sort of interdimensional explanation for UFOs and this kind of thing. So it's interesting to see that not only do you have a group like Regnery publishing a guy like Valet, but they seem to, with some of the other authors they were sponsoring, like Jacques Berger, really pushing uh, this much more mystical interpretation of the UFO phenomena at a time when much of the field was still really dominated by the nuts and bolts crowd. So that's another aspect of this that I just found to be infinitely fascinating. And that sort of led to um, additional research into whether or not this was some kind of operation. And then uh, I know you mentioned Bigelow. What are some of the ways you got into him in the book? I mean, there's just the, the whole, I've kept up with all the Skinhawker Ranch thing. One of the most fascinating things about that is that Jacques uh, Vallée supposedly went there. And uh, we've never heard much about that that I know of anywhere. But supposedly he actually went there to whatever happened. But he showed up there. Yeah, I think Vallée had been... If I remember correctly, one of the first scientists with NIDS and then was at the National Institute of Discover Science or something like that. And then there was a, uh, a successor organization to that that came out later. And I believe that was the one that uh, Valet definitely had ties to. Uh, but the interesting thing to me with the whole thing with Skinwalker was the connection that a lot of um, uh, the spooky type of people involved with it had to the aviary. Um, again, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are probably familiar with the aviary, but uh, this was sort of a loose group of uh, intelligence officers, largely driven from, drawn from the military. Uh, they seem to have originally come together in the mid to late 70s around the cattle mutilation phenomena. And then um, going into the early 80s, they show up in the notorious Benowitz affair. And... And the backdrop of a lot of these guys, as I had looked into this more, was the connection uh, to non-lethal weapons. Of course, this is really well known with Colonel John Alexander. He was kind of the point man uh, for the army on this. But when you look at some of the other um, things that turn up in the aviary, uh, of course, you had Doty, who was connected to uh, the base in Arizona, Kirkland, I believe it was. This is where... We had a major microwave research facility there for weaponization. This is another thing that's tied to non-lethal weapons. You have people like Russell Targ, who I believe was a laser scientist prior to going into the whole remote viewing thing. 
Again, this is also linked to non-lethal weapons. You have people like uh, Dr. Christopher Green, who's done research on Havana Syndrome and a lot of other things related to that, like Project Pandora. So I had really started to consider the possibility, and this wasn't really something I got into with the book, but just kind of personally, whether or not Skinwalker was being used as a kind of testing ground for some of these uh, psychotronic devices. And I think specifically for the purpose of trying to see if you could induce a paranormal experience essentially uh, through this sort of scientific mechanical method. And it kind of ties into the notion that, you know, when you put e uh, an EEG machine up to somebody and monitor their brain waves, there's a specific frequency that they're resonating when they're undergoing some kind of supernatural experience, right? Yeah. So. Is there a way that you could use these psychotronics to try to put somebody in that, um, that kind of status and see if you can induce something out of it? Did you and, see that Chris Bledsoe episode where they did that? No, I didn't, but that does not surprise me. Chris Bledsoe is another really fascinating character yeah. in all of this and a guy who also later ended up hooking up with John Alexander. So that's Here's where it's weird. There's so many spooks there. I mean, the last season ended with them agreeing there's some kind of base under there that may be alien or military that they don't know about, which I'm sure Bigelow knew that when he went through there. But anyway, uh, it gets weirder and weirder. But they had a Beyond Skinwalker Ranch episode where they're going to other ranches and phenomenons happening that's similar to Skinwalker Ranch. And uh, they have an episode with Colonel John Alexander, Chris Bledsoe, two former cia analysts it's like so crazy they he he summons ufos and then they have that kind of just what you said all hooked up to him and and he enters a state and they do some big neurology report and all this crap and anyway here's where it gets creepy i've had a lot of similar phenomenon like that happen to me i call them my goldie oldie phenomenons after my dad died and a lot of weird stuff like that that's similar i don't feel like i could go out there now and do it i don't think the aliens or whatever likes me anymore so probably not but i've had some weird stuff happen to where people have seen vehicles over houses and said jeffrey you're attracting them here and i've wondered if they've taken me I don't know if they have, but you wonder when you see that many, you know, parked over your homes. But the weird thing is about UFO of God, go to Amazon if you haven't. Look up that book and just study and kind of watch it. It's in the Christian section. And in the comments, all the people are like, oh, now I'm having these experiences. And John Alexander has a blurb on it like, you can be like them too. And I jokingly say it's like they're commercializing Christian UFO summoning. It's like a golf seeing golf at Target now. And to me, seeing all this, it's a weird thing going on. I don't trust it. I bought the book. I started it, but I, I, I need to finish it. It's just kind of like one of those things, like the Necronomicon or something. Like, should I read it? <laughs> you know? but uh definitely some spookery going on with these shows and and then that colonel john alexander's there and the dude summoning them supposedly and i don't maybe it could be some of the stuff you talked about and they're faking it maybe it really is the nephilim aliens that live here i don't know <laughs> but well, there's I would, definitely I would some spookery kind of, afoot <laughs> go ahead <laughs> well i mean i would say even if it's potentially being induced by psychotronics that doesn't necessarily mean that they're faking it 
Um, I mean, I guess it really kind of, you know, depends on where you fall on the phenomenon. Is it something that's totally created by the human mind? Is possibly as Greg Bishop has indicated, where it's maybe a co-creation thing, where there's something out there that's interacting with the human consciousness. But it does seem very clear that a lot of the supernatural experiences are related to the human consciousness. But I mean, potentially also the location. I mean, I know one of the fascinating things that I've sort of pondered with Skinwalker. So there's the rumors that there were reports of paranormal incidents at the ranch before the one family got it. I think it was the Gorman family, if I'm not mistaken. But that's been hotly contested. A lot of the former owners and people in the area have insisted that there really was no history of paranormal phenomenon there prior to the Gormans. And there's even been some dispute as to how accurate that was. But what's interesting about this, and I've talked to people um, who live in Utah who had a familiarity with the area, is that even though Skinwalker might not have been subjected to sort of supernatural phenomenon, there was a lot of really weird stuff happening in that specific area and had been for years. It was sort of well known to locals as a kind of window area, if you will. So it also kind of begged the question for this to work, was it also you know, was it just something where you could do this with electronic devices or something like that working? Uh, with a test subject, or did you also have to be in a specific region to induce these states or to get the most out of them or something to that effect? Because it does seem like there was something to the location. Again, this is something that I really haven't had a chance to explore as much as I would like, but... Um, yeah, the, yeah the, the, there was a book written by, oh, what's his name? Uh, Salisbury called the Utah Utah UFO Display. I actually wrote a blog and did a recording about it because the book is really interesting. It was published in the early 70s. It's the only it's the only thing that the guy ever wrote that was paranormal about the paranormal. He was a biologist and he and it's basically part of the Uinta Basin. Um, and uh, he he documents um, a series of well he and an investigator documented a series of various types of really odd sightings i mean they're they're not they're not sort of your some of them are not your normal sightings at all you know they don't fall within the normal kind of frame of what we think a sighting is that uh a lot of them occurred in the early uh mid to late 60s but there were some things that had occurred earlier than that but if you can get a copy of it if you don't already have a copy of it, it's called the U the utah ufo display and what i noticed when i was doing when i read this book and i did the thing about it is i realized that the the location of skinwalker's ranch is right in the middle of it mm -hmm. a much larger area so um you know uh and and the area has a really interesting history with the ute indians um which is something that 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 uh salisbury talks about a little bit but he doesn't you know that's not kind of where he's going with it so he doesn't follow up on it but if you know anything about the way um, indigenous people talk about these kinds of experiences a lot of the uh, they're having experiences too, but they're but they are not talking about it because they tend not to, um, at least at that time. It's 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 a very it's the, the whole area has an interesting history, like with the Mormon Church, 
um, because Salisbury was a, a Mormon individual. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of other stuff going on there, um, and this you know this all is predating um, Skinwalker Ranch significantly. So you're right, there's stuff there. I yeah, found, absolutely. I found that book online, and there's cheaper ones. Don't fall for the two hundred dollar ones. I found this like sixteen dollar ones. So. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> it, it's been out. It, this and interestingly enough, I, the reason I got this book initially was I can't remember what I was reading. But um, um, this is one of Valet's favorite books. It's one of his favorite studies. Um, he has it on a list somewhere that I read. And uh, um, the reason that it's an interesting book is that the guy, the guy is a biologist. And so he, so he takes a very kind of organic but, but very data-filled approach. You know, he interviews people. They, they go to the sites where these things have happened. Uh, they, they, they take, you know, they try to, they, they try to, you know, figure out different things that things could have been, but you know, it's so it's, but it's done very simply. It's, it's not, there's, there's no interpretation of events. Um, it's just the data, which is weird enough. <laughs> you know what I mean? So. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I do think that that's a really significant aspect of the whole Skinwalker thing that, you know, has been greatly overlooked is the fact that this whole area was kind of a, a high weirdness mecca, which again, makes you wonder, is this, you know, the only region in that regard uh, that they've been exploring for those particular reasons? Because, I mean, certainly I would say that that's not the only one in the United States or in the oh, world for that matter. So. Heavens, no. I, I mean, I live in one. So Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I'm in West Virginia, too. I mean, I'm not on the weird side on the western part, but I mean, yeah, I, I don't have to travel too far to get to some of these places. Um, and uh, what's so weird about the Chris Bledsoe stuff in the book, it seems like they're trying to get people outside to interact with this phenomenon. And what concerns me about that is who knows? I've had people come on that claim they've been kidnapped by like my labs kind of stuff. Luckily, that didn't happen to me. Maybe they just saw me and said, no, that one's on a lot of drugs. Throwing back my dad had died. I turned into a Scarface. So maybe they're like throwing me back like a dirty fish. But uh I do firmly believe that let's say someone gets out there and starts having Chris Bledsoe stuff that can attract them. And I do not trust them. They have a history of taking people and probably doing weird X-Men stuff and whatever. I don't want to get too cuckoo with it, but there's stuff truth to that, you know, and now they're trying to get everybody to read this book and go out there and do it. It's like a weird John Carpenter movie that I don't trust. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, especially in the, you know, the current times that we're living in, I mean, you just alluded to the whole, you know, the conflict right now that we're currently seeing in Israel and Palestine. I mean, I think the, the real danger with a lot of this stuff at this particular juncture is that, you know, you could see one of these potential cults suddenly gain a mass following. Um, especially, I think, with how much that we're trying to see the, you know, the UFO field being revived in the public discourse with, mm -hmm. with uh, disclosure, with, um, let's just say, like, that whole bizarre incident with, what was it, the weather balloon or something like that? Oh, I know. I know. China earlier in the year, which yeah. I think that actually happened over North Carolina, too, if I'm not mistaken, which is where... Uh, yeah, Blitzo is based out of. But, yeah, yeah it's... 
you know, and it's not to say that it would necessarily be a UFO cult per se, but certainly we are in a, a particular time in history that has a certain apocalyptic flavor to it, let us just say. Well, it just gets worse and worse. <laughs> it's just and, getting worse and worse. And I've always been concerned about foreign nation pretending to be uh, UFO aliens and just like dropping a nuke from one of them. Oh, there's a UFO over Florida. What's that coming out of it? <laughs> I mean, it's not out of the ordinary to think, for sure. It's crazy. Well, I mean, the really scary thing, though, is, I mean, and potentially if some of this technology works, I mean, it begs the question, could you induce spiritual experiences in people, you know, I mean, or something to that effect uh, on call, essentially, and that really raises uh, some disturbing prospects. And then yeah. especially against the trend with some of the stuff we're seeing, like reality shifting and things like that, or, you know, people are sort of consciously kind of studying things like the gateway method that, um, oh, what is it? The, uh, the one group had developed for the army. Um, well, it wasn't, I mean, the gateway method. Oh, the Monroe Research Institute. That's right. That's right. But it was something that was adopted by the army. But I mean, yeah, this is like the kind of world we're living in. We're now declassified CIA documents and the gateway method are being spread around the internet as a way to try to induce disassociation and willing participants. Um, yeah, that's very much the whole, uh, what kind of stranger things, X-Men, uh, reinterpretation of a lot of this stuff. Definitely. And I definitely think there's something to like energy weapons and manipulating emotions and things like that. I mean, I had Robert Duncan on before and supposedly he made some tech that they stole and he went like whistleblower and they used it to like a, a gang stalk people or something or assault them electronically. So, I mean, who knows what they're shooting at us. I know they, uh, China had some satellite shooting lasers at Hawaii doing some kind of study to it that was on local news stations uh some kind of satellite from them that was doing something like just they weren't like harmful lasers that i know of but just kind of like shooting it at hawaii and they caught them doing it so there's definitely stuff with energy weapons for sure and throw that up with uh cosmic energies and you just have a mess that's what it feels like <laughs> Well, that was, I mean, that was one of the things, too, in, like, working on this book where I had to kind of reevaluate uh, the Benowitz affair in that context. Because I hadn't, you know, really thought of it in this way before. But, I mean, in a lot of ways, it is kind of a early, well-documented form of gang stalking. Right. And when you sort of look at that in conjunction with, say, Robert Guffey's account in Camellio of uh, what his friend experienced after he supposedly stole those goggles... Uh, from the military base in San Diego, uh, it does sort of paint a potential path that this technology could have progressed along and how it's been developed over the years by the national security circles. So, um, you know, again, this is another aspect of all this that's really frightening, and especially with, you know, the rise of the Internet, uh, which it was just kind of happening when um, a lot of the events in Camellia were described. But yeah, I mean, when you look at the possibility of potentially using psychotronics through some of these online services, I mean, there were, I mean, I've talked to people who were involved with some of the Q stuff, we'd acknowledge that there had been some subliminals put into some of the videos and things like that. It does raise, you know, again, some really creepy prospects for what all of this could be going towards, essentially. No doubt about it just looking through all the acronyms for every 
agency in your your book <laughs> there's mufon oh that's a good one <laughs> yeah yeah well that's that? i think that's part of the yeah i mean they create all these different i think subgroups to try to confuse everybody because yeah you and ending up like doing this kind of stuff you end up drowning in like acronyms from all these different groups and agencies and so forth and but i mean ultimately when you pull it back it's you know you really just kind of find the same you know group of people appearing in all of this stuff over and over again so there you go um but i mean another aspect of the book you know kind of getting back to edward lansdome i think that he was so important in all of this was essentially his ongoing quest to weaponize spirituality and mysticism mm -hmm. and this goes all the way back uh to the counterinsurgency campaign that he conducted in the philippines in the aftermath of the second world war it was also the first major uh, counterinsurgency effort that he that the united states was involved in in the aftermath of the second world war and in this landstill was probably greatly aided by this guy called charles bohannon who doesn't get talked about a lot but he's a really interesting guy in his own right as well he was actually a uh, harvard trained anthropologist i believe who had worked with the Smithsonian uh, chronicling the Navajo prior to World War II. Uh, then he had ended up uh, engaged in, in um, guerrilla warfare in uh, the Philippines against the Japanese during the conflict and then afterwards uh, became one of Lansdale's main assets in his counterinsurgency campaigns. So Lansdale ended up advocating what he referred to as low humor in psychological warfare efforts. And he defined low humor as taking suspected insurgents, uh, draining them of blood after they had been executed, putting puncture wounds in their neck and hanging them upside down from trees so that it appeared as though they had been killed by vampires, as this was a major superstition in the Philippines. And that was hardly the only thing that Lansdale got into. He started having Masonic um, all-seeing eyes painted across uh, from the doorways of suspected insurgents to give them the sense that they were being watched. He would have um, insurgents who had been executed before they were executed. He would have them recorded making confessions. And then he would have these confessions broadcast from speakers and airplanes to make it seem like the ghosts of these uh, individuals were now speaking to the villages that they had come from, warning them of the consequences of opposing the U.S. empire. Well, they would actually say that, but you know, the kind of hint was all there. And the stuff just continued on and on. Um, Lansdale's work was really the sort of prototype for Vietnam and the Phoenix program. And I mean, there, the stuff just really got taken overdrive. Of course, you had the, uh, the kind of infamous Operation Wandering Souls, which is a continuation of trying to use these, you know, these voices broadcast this time from helicopters to convince the locals that ghosts were haunting them. Uh, Colonel Michael Aquino had actually cut his teeth in Operation Wandering Soul. And then you had just some really ghoulish approaches to this. Um, for one thing, there was a belief among the Vietnamese that the soul uh, left the body through the third eye and the pineal gland and the forehead. So at times they would have death cards um, nailed into the skulls of insurgents in that particular area to mutilate that part of their brain. So theory that they would be uh, prevented from reincarnating or something like that by doing this. And just part of this whole era, uh, by the early 60s, Lansdale was essentially heading a kind of proto version of the Special Operations Command. And um, under his tenure, 
Special Operations Forces embarked upon a massive research into all kinds of uh, just cultism across the world. Uh, one of the more famous studies that was done was essentially examining witchcraft and magic in the Congo, uh, which I think published in 1963. But there was a massive amount of this really arcane research being done. And in a lot of ways, this might have been the largest undertaking of investigations into indigenous uh, magical systems that potentially had ever been done before since, honestly. I mean, it was just enormous. And Lansdale at the same time was effectively overseeing uh, the counterinsurgency program in ARPA. This was, of course, the earlier version of DARPA back this was before they added the D to it. But they had this whole thing that was called Project Agile. It was being used to develop counterinsurgency methods for Vietnam. And one of the things that they were doing with this uh, was using computers to mine data for predictive modeling. They had essentially these, uh, these model hamlets set up in Vietnam uh, where they would relocate the populations to, and they would start using this to harvest data from them to try to see if they could project where uh, insurgencies were going to emerge from and who was going to be the technical insurgent and all of this. So Lansdale was really cutting edge in this regard as well. He saw the potential for how computers could be used for these kinds of modeling. And it really raises some interesting questions as to whether or not this was also being applied to some of the research that they were doing on indigenous superstitions and so forth. Because all of this was tied in by the Vietnam era into the Phoenix program. So again, you know, if you're familiar with some of Dave McGowan's theories about potentially how Phoenix was brought back to the United States uh, going into the 70s. Um, again, it definitely raises some pretty incredible possibilities with all of this. And I know I was thinking about the alien Peru thing when you're talking about all that kind of stuff, like that weird stuff that just happened with the Peru and the aliens and all that, the deaths, you know, did you see, see all that crap? Uh, no, I don't think I'm familiar with that. What happened? crazy story in peru that was all over the news that these aliens appeared and oh killed, yeah kill villagers and they were like they showed the and i mean all these radio hosts start talking about it all over the place and i, I always had discernment with it because it sounds like some crazy like it sounds like what you were just talking about like some made-up crap from the government that they did to do something but look it up peru alien attacks and it's yeah yeah what, was, that that was the thing wasn't that the thing where um their faces the, got hacked yeah and, and well right and and the the was it was that the thing where the where where there was like some kind of weird light that was caught on a on a yeah, body cam there was supposedly some kind of footage and and, and by, by, the, by the police and then um there were these strange beings that appeared that's in Las Vegas. I think you're oh, talking, that's you're Las talking, Vegas. Okay, that's Las Vegas. There's the Las <laughs> that's Vegas. That's just Las Vegas. <laughs> that always happens. That's just always happens. But, uh, but uh, that's a cool story too. The Las Vegas. That's a whole another uh, another one for sure. But the Peru thing was actual people dying, supposedly having their faces carved off, pictures of bodies. Oh, that's right. That's right. And their news was like aliens, aliens, and you know, and it was crazy. And all these like right wing Christian hosts, like Timothy Al. Alberno or like going down there and investigating and all this crap and uh i don't know it's just when he was talking about all that it just made me think of black ops some kind of weird government something but basically it was uh and then later a story came out that somehow it was uh 
lumber, no, not miners with jetpacks that did it all. It was just weird. Look it up, Alien Peru attack sometime. It's a crazy just for fun. You'll you'll have fun. <laughs> well, yeah. crap. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because there has been a lot of attempts by the sort of circles around the Q crowd to penetrate a lot of these uh, kind of esoteric and leaning and then sort of UFO uh, obsessed groups in South America. Um, gosh, who was the guy who had disappeared a couple of years ago? Well, actually, it would have been probably around 2018, 2019 or something like that. But they thought that he had been abducted by aliens or something like that. And then it turned out that it had just been like a staged incident or something. Um, but this was another event that was kind of tied in with some of the circles around Q and Cicada 3301. And there's a huge overlap with all of this and the I am movement as well, which is oh, like, I, yeah, that's that's right. There is. That's yeah. Right. Which is, I gather, it's gained a lot of traction um, in right. South America through kind of like the, you know, the attempt to revive the Church of the Seven Rays, which mm -hmm. it's kind right. of crazy in of itself. The original Church of Seven Rays, as far as I can tell, actually was uh, launched by George Hunt Williamson. I think it actually might have been in Peru in the 50s. It was somewhere there. Um, but George Hunt Williams was just another, well, he was one of the Chandlers for the nine, which is interesting, but I mean, he was also, uh, tied in with William Dudley Paley, uh, mm -hmm. for a certain time frame, right. the uh, kind of World War II era Fuhrer here in the United States who had ran the Silver Shirt program. Uh, Williamson also knew Adam Ensky and a lot of the early uh, UFO contactees. So you see so much of this stuff being revived now, and especially through the whole I am movement, which is just really, uh, I guess, fascinating on the academic level, but maybe not so much when you're actually living out some of this. <laughs> I, kn I yeah. know you, you had mentioned Michael Aquino some, and we've had Don Webb and Stephen Flowers on, and I think we've talked about it some, but I know Don told me that he really did pass away. I've been just kind of oblivious to it. Like I, I've heard of him and Temple Set and other some weird stuff, but I guess I'm just usually high, so I'm just like they're cool guests. I love the shows. But what were you saying about him? I mean, was he really as notorious as some of the stuff I hear? I mean, I know I've seen so they used to call him uh, Grandpa Monster, and I, I've I've looked at some of his pictures. He definitely got the eyebrows. Sometimes mine try to do that, but I stop it. <laughs> well, I mean, most likely Aquino is probably going to be kind of the main character of the second book, much the same way that Lansdale was sort of the main character of the first one. Um, I, As far as Aquino goes, I mean, I think way too much attention has been put on uh, the allegations around him at Presidio. Um, you know, it's neither here nor there. I don't really want to get into that as to whether or not they're true. Uh, for those of you, though, unfamiliar with this, it was essentially the allegations that he was behind uh, the child abuse that was being carried out at the Presidio uh, Daycare Center in the right. San Francisco uh, during the late 1980s. Yeah, I've heard something uh, like that, but I didn't know any much about it. Yeah. Again, I mean, a lot of there are a lot of time and effort has been invested into trying to prove whether or not Aquino was involved in that. But I mean, I, I know it's kind of controversial, but I've often felt that that was maybe a bit of a distraction to sort of overlook 
Aquino's broader influence in psychological warfare and just a lot of the other stuff that he was involved with over the course of his career and really a lot of the later circles they became involved with. I mean, of course, he would uh, at least eventually hook up with Colonel John Alexander and the oh, enigmatic body of uh, the Association of Former Intelligence Officers. Uh, supposedly, he was active uh, in the Las Vegas chapter along with Alexander and uh, Doty and uh, some of these other characters. But uh, this is just a lot of strange stuff with the association of former intelligence officers in general. It's well to begin with, it's really kind of a kook outfit. I mean, most of the people involved with it aren't even ex spies. It tends to attract a lot of um, mentally unhinged people, to put it mildly. Uh, it's for that reason, it's been linked to a lot of fraud over the years, which is why it's fascinating that a guy like Kino and Alexander uh, would end up being tied to it. But yeah, Aquino, one of the things that I did get into in my book uh, is the fact that he was active with the American Security Council during the 1980s, which is another aspect of his career that's often overlooked. Uh, but the ASC at its heyday uh, was described as the heart, if not the very soul of the military industrial complex in the United States. It was a very uh, right-wing think tank that also uh, operated as essentially a private intelligence service for a lot of years. This was the group uh, that the Institute for American Strategy was very closely connected to from practically the beginning, and eventually they merged into the same outfit around the mid-1970s. Uh, Aquino was active in this. He had actually thanked uh, the longtime head of the ASC, John Fisher, in one of the papers that he wrote during the 1980s. So Aquino was already sort of tied in with a lot of these uh, conservative groups. I mean, again, the American Security Council is a major backer of Ronald Reagan, of the Christian right, of all this other kind of stuff. So it's interesting that, you know, as self-professed left-hand path practitioner like Michael Aquino uh, would show up in there. Um, but nonetheless, there he was, and he was apparently widely accepted in the group, as far as I can tell. So... Yeah. yeah, we'll have to get into that more with your second book for sure. I know I've seen pictures of me that's pretty creepy to me, but I'm sure people think I'm creepy too sometimes. But well, but, that's uh, kind of the theatrical thing. I mean, I think that you know, in and of itself, was kind of a psychological thing because I mean, you got to remember this is you know the 1980s. It's the heyday of the Satanic Panic, and Colonel Aquino is going out on all of these daytime talk shows, like you're saying, with the the plucked eyebrows and the Bell of Lugosi cape, and he's basically <laughs> rubbing it in the face of the christian right yeah. <laughs> you know I practicing a cultist in the u.s military i mean yeah it's, it it's pretty much designed to be a trigger right there it's like he looks like a dude he slayed dungeons and dragons with <laughs> but, but uh i saw a picture of him with anton lavey and sammy davis jr well yeah he had started out in the church of satan um I think, he had, I think he had joined it in the late picture. 1960s. So, yeah, I mean. What was up with Sammy Davis Jr. doing all that stuff? Like, do you know much about that? I mean, I never really looked as much into Sammy Davis Jr. It's uh, kind of, uh, he, you wouldn't expect that for some reason. I, would, I, don't, I mean, it's Hollywood. I mean, people are yeah. just involved with a lot of, you know, weird groups around. I mean, this is, there's a lot of strange characters in L.A. Let's just, you know. I mean, you almost have to be a strange character in and of your in and of yourself just as a you know stand out there. So, you know, being a member of the Church of Satan gives you a little bit of street cred, at least back in the day. You know. 
Was that? I know. I always. I was telling someone that story about Jane Vansfield. Uh, Jan, Jan, what's her name? The, the actress, the Aunt Levey, and she had the wreck, and supposedly he cursed her. And Mansfield, yeah, Jane Mansfield. I know there's some story about he supposedly cursed her or something and blamed himself for that wreck or something like that. I've heard you know weird little stories like that and things. But uh, I'm just surprised. I guess I know it was weird when they said on Skinwalker Ranch their computer there is named Satan. Like, is that a good idea? That seems like some deliberate theatrics. Like, is it a good idea to name your computer Satan at a Skinwalker Ranch, you know, headquarters? <laughs> Just some strange things like that. But so with all this stuff that you research or into, have you ever had any, like, governmental trouble or think they're watching you with a satellite or anything like that? <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, I usually go almost like kind of seek that stuff out, really, so they don't have to come to me. I mean, I've uh, gone to these glorious things for the last three years now in D.C. What is it? The uh, the Captive Nations Conference that the Victims of Communist Memorial Foundation puts on. Um, like last year, for instance, they had Madame Zelensky come there shortly before she went to meet with Joe Biden uh, during the summer of 2022. Uh, it's you know, you've got people like Edward Fulner, the Heritage Foundation, showing up there, a bunch of poobahs from the Atlantic Council and a lot of these other big uh, think tanks. But the point being, I'm probably the only person that comes to these things year in and year out that's not a spy or like a military officer or something like that. So, uh, you know, I go there and I mean, I get looked over pretty good. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that they're pretty content with that. But I mean, I have occasionally had some weird instances happen to me. Um, as you can probably tell if you're watching this from the live stream, I'm in a cabin here uh, out in West Virginia. Um, at one point, I would occasionally have uh, people show up uh, and park in my driveway like late at night, uh, around two or three in the morning or so. And they would just sit there for a time and at one point, um, I think this was like right at three in the morning. I was like literally just about to go to bed. So the, you know, the cabin's all dark on the outside. Truck pulls up, parks in the driveway. He's got the engine running. He's got the lights on. And I'm just kind of sitting here in the dark for like a few minutes to see how long this was going to go on. And after five minutes, the guy's still sitting there with his lights on. So I turned the lights on in the cabin, you know, try to make it seem like somebody's like waking up just to see what would happen. The guy was still sitting there with the engine going with the lights on his truck. So it was at that point I went into my bedroom, got my 38 out. I didn't actually have bullets on, in it at the time, so I had to go track the bullets down and get it loaded. Kind of hoping that he had left by then. Sadly, he was still sitting out there in the truck with the lights on. So now I'm walking out on the patio. I raised the gun. And at that point, when he saw that I had a pistol, he did finally leave the property. Uh -oh. um, but yeah, I, that was probably the most intense thing that I've had happen. I don't, you know, again, know if this was in any way, shape or form, like something related to national security, it could just as easily be, uh, somebody with the Q thing who was trying to troll me or something. I don't think it was like local kids trying to get high or something like that, because a, there's a lot more secluded spots in the immediate area that you could pull your park off your car and park, you know, off to the side of the road by. And also if you're you know just going to sit around late at night, getting high in your car, it's 
you usually don't do it with your lights on you know that's that's kind of a no-no i say that from personal experience so yeah you don't leave the lights on you don't leave the engine running so that you wake up the house that you're at and you don't just continue to sit there after the lights come on yeah um so that's creepy for sure yeah because so more than i just don't want somebody to get hurt with this kind of stuff you know that's what really yeah. unsettled me about that because i was as close is there, is there people well, in including you <laughs> yeah <laughs> and is there what are some of the outlets you use to get uh the cue your opinion about that across that attracts people i've lately had a few stalkers there's some crazy guy where i work that thinks i'm an israeli agent his name's Marine. He's fighting tyranny, and he like leaves weird death threats and tries to like provoke people to get me. And he hates somebody named Monkey Works, which is some guy on YouTube that shares airplane paths. He's an Israeli agent. I'm like a redneck from Georgia, dude. I've never been on a plane. <laughs> if they're hiring, let me you know. <laughs> you follow UFO stuff too. Does that like make you an Israeli agent, like innately, because of what Yuri Geller maybe or something like that? Or? I don't understand it at all. He's <laughs> just a nut. For sure, but but yeah, they're out there. There's no doubt about it. You got to be careful and alert. Uh, for sure. But yeah, that's um, like I said, and then the whole captive nations thing. And well, there I'm dealing more with like the whole Ukrainian lobby. That is a group that does like uh, creep me out a little bit when you get into the Banderites and the OUNB characters and some of these other groups. So. Uh, but yeah, I hopefully will um, be able to avoid a gunfight in the near future. At least that's always my goal. It's not the kind of thing that I yeah. really want to get involved with. <laughs> there was one time I had a, I, I, I said I was going to at a house said I was going to turn my phone off on a landline and a $2,000 credit appeared on it. And I, ne I have no idea where it came from. No idea. If anyone gave me that, they would have told me that I knew. It was either a mistake or a government agency added it to keep my phone going. I turned it off anyway. They sent a check to me, and I paid some land taxes and went on a shopping spree and turned the phone off anyway. It was a mystery $2,000, and I always wondered maybe someone told me once, this guy named Joe Resnick, that they, they listened to my show, and they don't think I'm patriotic, and I should say God bless America after show, uh, the show, and they know how many times I flush a toilet. And I'd wondered if someone added it to it to keep it on, to keep listening. The only thing really mysterious I did really was the show. <laughs> there was nothing else going on. So unless it was a mistake, but it was definitely weird. You don't just, you know, get two grand for no reason from someone. So that was an odd thing for sure. I but, wish uh, they would send me two grand. I mean, that yeah. if you're going to get gang stalked, I mean, certainly that would be the most desirable outcome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've just give me money. I've tried, I've tried saying, I'm going to shut off my phone again. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> so what do you mean? I know in one of your chapters, Gremlins comes up again. You know, we, we that's kind of like a trickster type, uh, archetype or something. What, what's Gremlins? Oh, the Gremlins were actually Edward Lansdale's accolades uh, that he left in the military and the national security circles. There were uh, a lot of interesting characters in that regard. Um, one of my favorites that I turned up was a guy called General Edwin Black. Not the guy who wrote IBM and the Holocaust. Um, because generally when you put Edwin Black, that's like the first thing that comes up. But no, no, this was a very different person. Uh, Edwin Black is quite a fascinating guy. Uh, he... 
uh, was tied up with the guy, what was his name, Thompson, I think, the Thai Silk King. He was a former OSS officer who had disappeared uh, in Thailand in 1967. Uh, General Black had overseen uh, the attempted search for him, and he had actually brought in uh, Peter Herkos, the, uh, the Dutch mm -hmm. psychic, to help look for it. In fact, he was using a lot of like soothsayers and stuff like that, indigenous ones as well for that. Uh, but when you look at Black's history, uh, it makes a lot more sense. Besides being a good, long-standing friend of Edward Lansdale, he was involved in a lot of spooky stuff over the years. So when he retired from the uh, military, he ended up uh, going to work for a little bank in Australia known as Nugent Hand, uh, which was later implicated as being a major financier in uh, drugs and arms smuggling by the CIA. After Nugent Hand went belly up, he uh, turned up in another bank in Hawaii. I can't recall the name now, but um, this one actually ended up having, I believe, its records classified by the CIA because they didn't want their links coming out to it. Uh, it went bust in 1983, and uh, Edward Lansdale had actually been visiting General Black in Hawaii at his home there uh, over the Christmas uh, time frame, uh, right around the time when all this was uh, coming to a head, which is also quite interesting. But Black, um, even before he had met Lansdale, he was involved in a lot of curious stuff. Uh, one uh, really interesting uh, declassified document I encountered was an FBI uh, report from 1949 that seems to have been chronicling uh, what would later become the Artichoke Committee, but this is back when it was just Project Bluebird. And for those of you unaware, Project Bluebird was the first of the, uh, say, behavioral modification programs mm -hmm. that the CIA launched. Yeah. It later became Artichoke. Uh, contrary to what has been widely reported, Artichoke was never rolled into MK Ultra. They were separate programs. They continued concurrently until 1963 uh, when they morphed into other projects and they were both shuttered around 73 when right before the exposure started to come out. Uh, but also uh, this is significant because Bluebird and then later Artichoke were actually joint military and CIA programs, whereas MK Ultra was just in the CIA program. And Artichoke and Bluebird had grown out of earlier programs in the Navy specifically, such as Project Chatter and Project Pelican. Uh, but anyway, as for this meeting, it seems to have been one of the early uh, committee meetings uh, for Bluebird. And the chair of the meeting was General Edwin Black. And I was able to find out uh, what body of uh, the government that this committee was attached to at the time. I believe it was the joint... We, oh God, I can't remember what it was called. Now, like you said, there's so many freaking acronyms in here. But um, the point being, it was a body that at the time was overseen by Vannevar Bush. And again, if you're in ufology, you probably know who this guy was. He was uh, long said to be the head of Majestic 12. Uh, again, whether or not that was a real program, we don't entirely know, but we do have the Smith document, uh, which came from Canada, uh, issued by a guy called Wilbert Smith, who acknowledged that uh, Vannevar Bush was overseeing a UFO program in the United States, I think during the 1950s. 
So this is really interesting because it's been known for some time now that some of Vannevar Bush's accolades like uh, H. Marshall Chadwell would later go on to work for Project Artichoke, but uh, we've never really known if Bush had been tied into that. But after putting this together, I found that Bush actually was uh, essentially overseeing the uh, body that uh, the committee for Bluebird was a part of in the very early days. Now, he was not a big fan of this kind of stuff and left not long afterwards, but there was that connection from the very beginning. And another interesting thing about this committee was the CIA representative in 1949. He was a gentleman named Cleve Baxter. Again, if you're familiar with New Age and UFO circles, you probably know who this guy is, but I'll give you a hint. He claimed to be able to communicate with plants with polygraph, with a polygraph machine. Before he embarked upon these things, though, he was an expert in narco-hypnosis for the military and the CIA, which is why he was the representative for this. So this is just really fascinating because it shows that almost from the very beginning, a lot of these investigations into UFOs were closely tied to these programs like Artichoke and MKUltra. And Baxter would continue to mine these fields for years afterwards. He uh, became involved with a fascinating group known as the Sovereign Order of St. John, a private body that was almost entirely staffed with former senior high-ranking military officers. When you look at their military affairs committee, it's general this, admiral that, colonel so-and-so, like say Colonel Philip J. Corso, member of the Order of St. John and also the author of The Day After Roswell. Uh, Mr. Baxter for this committee uh, went around and uh, interviewed a lot of abductees like Travis Walton and sent reports back to uh, the head, the Grand Master, excuse me, the Grand Chancellor of the SOSJ, uh, good old Charles Pichel. I uh, found a lot of these documents in uh, Baxter's collection at, uh, it was one of the universities in Georgia. I can't recall it off the top of my head. So again, it's really fascinating that Baxter was a guy, an old OG bluebird man who would continue to be closely tied into these circles after he had left the National Security Services, at least officially. He would be involved with this private group that was heavily comprised of former military men that was also closely connected to the essentially the cult of Christian identity theology that was implicated in numerous acts of terrorism across the country for decades. That was also closely tied to the militia movement, but also was fascinated with UFOs, with Oregon energy, and continued to keep tabs on a lot of the circles around that. So again, this, this raises a lot of very interesting possibilities with all of this. Definitely. I'm thinking of that PK Man book by I think Jeffrey Mishlove. Like, what was that guy who could summon earthquakes or something? That seemed like some government spookery. Are you familiar with that book, PK Man? Or not off the top of my head. And uh, it's a book that Jeffrey Mishlove uh, wrote, and it's about a guy that supposedly has all these powers. And definitely look it up sometime. It's called The PK Man by Jeffrey Mishlove. It's pretty pretty weird and there's probably a lot of government spookery you heard of that book wham bk man i have i haven't read it though it's a weird one i interviewed mish love a long time ago he has, has a book roots of consciousness uh he does a lot of uh 
interviews. I forget the name of the show. No, New Thinking Aloud. It's on YouTube. But uh, any questions you wanted to ask Wham about the book or anything? Well, well I'm just, you know, I, I've, I'm back. I'm back reading it. It's like I, I read it quickly a couple weeks ago, and uh, you know, completely fascinating. And uh, I like the whole. I I, I want to know a little bit. Talk a little bit about the SRI and dead cows. Oh well, yeah, that kind of goes back to the whole thing with how cattle mutilations had really seemed to have been the genesis for bringing the aviary together or what eventually became sort of that network, I guess I should say. Um, and it's, it's interesting too. Um, uh, my friend, Nathan Paul Isaac, uh, for those of you unfamiliar, Nathan does the Penny Royal podcast, which is uh, fantastic. Uh, we were just uh, at strange realities about a week ago, actually during mm -hmm. our presentations there. And Nathan had an excellent presentation on the cattle mutilation phenomena. And it was really interesting because he had come to the conclusion that some of this was being uh, conducted by the John Birch society or people affiliated with it, uh, which is just really fascinating in terms of what I have been looking at with the arts, because it would potentially provide an explanation as to why uh, you see some of these senior CIA people essentially trying to investigate this phenomenon through a uh, private detective in New Mexico, especially since they uh, had a background in uh, life sciences and have really overseen that at the CIA. So if the cattle mutilations had been a kind of domestic terrorism or possibly even kind of uh, scare tactic or psychological warfare tactic. That's a killer black cat, by the way, Jeff. Thank you. Cats, but, uh, Thank but if you. they had been this kind of tactic, it really raises some interesting possibilities as to uh, the real reason why the aviary might have, or a proto version of it, might have become involved in the whole cat mutilation thing. This might have been a stealth way to keep tabs on domestic terrorism, or if it was maybe a broader psychological operation to monitor how it was being carried out. But again, it's just fascinating that this sort of bleeds into uh, the Benowitz affair. You know, as we had just right. been talking about before, Benowitz is sort of seen as, it could potentially be seen as a kind of early form of gang stalking. So this kind of broader context does raise the possibility was the ghetto mutilation thing initially, a kind of psychological operation, and then to also gauge the public's reaction to it and to how it was being framed. If it was, say, being put out there as something that was carried out by a cult or Satanists, or on the other hand, if it's something it's being done by UFOs, essentially. Right. Yeah. I mean, the reason it was interesting to me, and I've been interested in this um, in cattle mutilations, is because in the early 1970s, like 1972, 73, I'd have to go back and kind of look at my notes. Um, I, I saw. Uh, I mean, I was. I saw the after effects of a cattle mutilation. Um, and it was, there was a, 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 a bunch of them, there was like a flap, I guess, you know, uh, a cluster of them that occurred in, I lived in Kansas, in eastern, northeastern Kansas at the time. And there was a cluster of them that occurred across several counties uh, in between like 1972 and 1974. And they were, 
they were all attributed. I mean, it was very odd. Um, they were all attributed to a cult of some type. Okay. But the truth is, is that no one knew really what was going on with it at all. And um, I happened to, one of these mutilations occurred very close to where I lived. It was less than a mile and a half from where my family lived at the time. And so, and this is before, you know, Linda Bolton Howe, this is before it became a thing, you know mm. what I mean? And, and so I, um, and I'd, I'd grown up on a farm um, as a child. And so was, was, you know, my, my grandpa, who, he was a cattleman. So I was very familiar with cows. I was very familiar with like how they died or, you know, what, what happened to carcasses and all of that kind of stuff. And so I actually went, I snuck on to the farmer's property and found the carcass and, um, and just kind of looked at it, looked at it very closely because I had been reading reports, you know, we, they were in the newspapers uh, about, you know, there's the, there are these cultists, you know, killing cows and mutilating them. And, and this carcass exhibited some of the classic things that we've come to associate with um, cattle mutilations now. Um, the, but what was really, you know, the, 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 the kind of the tongue was gone and the, it's, it's splayed out in a very unnatural fashion, sort of like if it had been dropped, you know, from a, from a height. Um, it had these little weird cookie cutter incisions, you know, with the burnt serrated edges and stuff. I mean, I, I noted all of this. I like took notes. I had noted all of this and this is before, again, it became a thing. And, but the thing that unnerved me the most, because I'm, you know, I'm used to dead cattle is, and this was like in late May or early June, this is in Kansas. It's very muggy. It's very warm. There were no flies or anything on this carcass. I mean, nothing. And, and it was very clear that there had been, and it had been laying there for three or four days and it was very clear that there had been no um, carrion activity on it either. You know, no um, vultures, no, um, you know, coyotes, you know, none, none of the, the normal things. A apparently what happened eventually was that the, uh, they did perform some kind of ne necropsy or something out in the field. And then the farmer was so unnerved by it that he just buried it right there. You know, he, they just brought a backhoe in and just buried it rather than take it anywhere. But um, I, I will never forget that, looking at that cow and having this feeling that something had happened. I mean, we did, they didn't associate it with UFOs or anything. You know, there wasn't anything like that. But it was not, not in the papers anyway. But um, I remember just thinking to myself, th there's something there's something really weird with this. This is a message of some type, but I don't know what it is, you know? Um, and I didn't think it was Satanists because it would, that didn't make any sense to me either. You know, I didn't even know what that would be. It's like, why would, why would occultists, you know, I mean, what, what's the point of this? This is obviously intended to confuse something or, or somebody or, or scare somebody. Or, or experiment with somebody. I mean, those were all the things I was thinking about. 
So um, I've always been really interested and have followed the phenomena um, because yeah. it, because it continues off and on, <clears throat> and and it's, and it's just weird. Well, I think that Nathan really did hit on to something with the possibility that some of these, uh, you know, fringe right wing groups might have been using some kind of chemical or biological weapon. Um, again, you know, just to sort of put some context into this, um, mm -hmm. by the 90s, when the apartheid regime in South Africa was collapsing, which had done extensive research on chemical and biological warfare weapons, you saw a lot of uh, these groups in the United States trying to uh, procure them. In some cases, there was some weird overlap. I mean, there was a guy, William Levitt, I believe, who was busted for this in Vegas. Uh, in 1999, or yeah, I think it was around that time frame, who actually had ties to mankind research and limited one of these sort of new agey groups that Baxter was linked to. And, but anyway, um, when you get all the way back to the 1970s, you have, on the one hand, uh, this bank that I was just talking about, Nugent Hand, uh, and several other groups like Soldier of Fortune magazine that were deeply involved in trying to raise uh, mercenaries uh, from, uh, you know, former uh, U.S. Special Forces uh, mm -hmm. soldiers who just come back from Vietnam. Uh, Lansdale, uh, again, was connected to both of these. In fact, he would later work uh, with Robert K. Brown and a couple of groups in the 80s. I think, though, he had met Brown back in the 70s, if I remember correctly from the letters that I found. Uh, but anyway... You know, these guys are trying to funnel troops to uh, both South Africa, but also Rhodesia. And Rhodesia, which eventually became Zimbabwe, but in the late 1970s, um, mm -hmm. the special forces in Rhodesia were also uh, overseeing a rather large chemical and biological warfare uh, program. And there have been indications that some pretty horrendous stuff was done with this. It's quite possible that anthrax was used quite mm. extensively. And I'm reminded that there was one area specifically where there were just tons of cows that died, if I remember correctly. And it's long been suspected that this is because uh, the special forces had deliberately uh, used anthrax to kill a lot of the cattle to try to induce starvation in the insurgents. So again, these, these there's a lot of intersection with these groups in the United States who were crucial to raising money for them, to trafficking arms and providing troops. So when you consider the possibility that some of Lansdale's people might have hooked up with the, the figures around the aviary and look at the stuff that's happening with the cattle mutilations in the United States a little even before what's you know happening in Rhodesia later Zimbabwe, you know, it paints a pretty unsettling picture about what might have been going on with all of this. Right. right. Well, you know, that's interesting because, um, you know, that, that very, very, that very first book that was ever written about cattle mutilations um, in that those cases that happened in Montana. Um, and of course I can't remember the name of the book now, but, but you can, you can find it. It was uh Hold on just a second. I'm going to look real quick. Um, but it was a cluster of, of mutilations that occurred in the late 60s and early 70s in, a, in like two or three counties in, um, in Montana. And uh, 
let's see here. What, where am I looking at? What am I looking at here? Oh, Mystery Stalks the Prairie. That's what the name of it is. Um, and you, you can find it. It's, it's, it, was, it was like a locally done, very um, quickly done little paperback. And, there's, and there was like a new edition that was published, I think, in like 2018 to 2019. Um, but there were, there were a lot of cattle mutilations that occurred very quickly. And what's interesting about this book is that the book goes into some... Um, this is, and it was published in the 70s, so it was like the mid-70s. The book goes into some detail into trying to differentiate between like natural deaths and deaths that were really odd um, and, and then talks about some of the other strange things that seem to be associated with the deaths. And when they did not necropsies on some of these animals, they found odd substances in them, some of which they couldn't identify. Yeah. And, and what I like about the book is that the book is done by a, uh, one of the, pol one of the um, investigating policemen or detectives who was actually on site for a lot of the cases that they discuss and a woman who's a journalist. It's just two, two people who lived in, in, in the vicinity and decided to collect these accounts and try to make sense of them and then just sort of publish the data and put it out there. They don't really speculate much about what might be going on, but because of that, they collect a lot of data points about um, uh, strange trucks being seen. You know what I mean? Strange vehicles, something's going on. It's very clear that, um, that, it's very clear that it's an operation of some kind, but they don't speculate as to why or what, but it's got good data in it. So it's another book I'd recommend if you can get it. No, I'll definitely look into that because I've, I've really just been unsettled by this ever since I was discussing this with Nathan, because um, the whole, uh, it was called Project Coast, the Chemical Biological Warfare Program in South Africa during the apartheid years. And this has been, a great, uh, of great interest to me for a lot of years. Uh, it's something that I've been studying quite extensively, but it, it's really a criminally overlooked situation because when we look at uh, the Cold War and specifically uh, the stuff tied in with Iran-Contra, mm -hmm. you know, we talk a lot about what went on uh, in Central America, what went on in Afghanistan, uh, but uh, Southern Africa was every bit as much of a significant theater of right. this. Right. And, uh, you know, we were working very closely with the South African regime there. And there's been, again, a lot of rumors as to what was done with some of the CBW stuff that they were working on in that capacity. And again, if we sort of go back and look at this lineage of um, us providing special operations forces, troops to you know, some of these regimes in Southern Africa, uh, it kind of does beg the question, well, you know, were they possibly trying to test tactics on a large scale that we had already maybe been covertly working up here? Well, you know, when you look at the cattle mutilations, it does sort of raise the possibility that maybe that was a kind of little test run until we uh, maybe try to do it maybe at a broader level in the field of combat. Yeah, it's yeah, there's something I, I all I remember is just how creeped out I was, you know, it, it it was something it was not it was not natural. It was not it was not supernatural either, but it was not natural, you know. 
I mean, I, I was, I've always figured it, it was human in origin somewhere. You know, I've never quite bought the UFO part of it. I, because that could have all been a cover. You know, a lot of that UFO stuff could have been disinformation about it. You know? Yeah. Well, I think almost all of the explanations were were some kind of disinformation, either you know, be it either the UFO narrative or you know, frankly, the satanic cult uh, narrative as well. Right, right. So, and again, I mean, I know this probably may sound incredible to some people, but um, to sort of put this in perspective, that, that roughly concurrently, in, I think it was yes, yeah, seventy two, seventy three, um, you know, in the UK. Uh, you had the troubles brewing up in Northern Ireland after the whole Sunday, Bloody Sunday thing. Uh, a former psychological warfare officer, Colin Wallace, has written quite a bit about the work that he did in Northern Ireland for the British Security Services. It was actually named Operation Clockwork Orange, um, ironically mm. or not. Um, but one of the really interesting things that Wallace noted, and a lot of people really haven't analyzed this surprisingly, but he claimed that he had done extensive research on occultism and then he had gone out to churches in Ireland and had tried to stage mock satanic altars and things like that at How these churches that? to try to convince the public that there were satanic cults active and working with the IRA. God. <laughs> Crazy. So, and again, you know, there's a pretty good chance if the, the you know, the British were considered actually doing this, well, probably the cousins were at least paying attention. Or doing a version thereof. Yeah, yeah. You so. know. There was the uh, Linda Moulton Howe on Skinwalker Ranch show with a uh, cattle mutilation and same stuff y'all are talking about, but supposedly they got some UFO in the sky over it, yada, yada, yada. But she was there on one of those shows, one of the episodes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, she has, you know, she has her, she, that, that whole narrative that she is attached to. And, 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 you know, don't get me wrong. I actually think she's a good person. <laughs> you know what I mean, sometimes I'll listen to her because I think she's, she does, she keeps track of other things that I think are valuable. You know, she keeps track of certain patterns that, you know, whether you agree with her interpretation or not, she's at least collecting the, the stories or, you know, the, the accounts of things. Um, but I, she's, she's, she's bought this whole narrative, which I think is just, I think it's wrong personally. I think it's, I think it's what somebody wants us to believe somewhere, you know, but um, it's, it's not flat earth. Is it? <laughs> no, 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 it's not that it has to do. No, no, no. It has to do with, um, I think what it's really masking is, is it, well, and I, I, I actually talk about this in my dissertation in a completely different way, but um, I, you know, she, she buys that whole narrative about um, cattle mutilations are part of uh, an, an extra, a joint extraterrestrial um, secret government um, project that for some reason is intended to produce some kind of hybrid, not of humans and cows, but, <laughs> but of, of humans and extraterrestrials and cows and other critters are used um, as kind of um, 
experimental fodder, if you will, or um, birthing chamber. Well, maybe you know. Yeah, I mean, she she's had she's had different, you know, different different ways of looking at it, but um, um, you know, she she ever talked about how they're sending the Delta Force down to the underground bases to battle the aliens and try to uh, stop the hybrid program. Yeah, that that part of it, that part of it, and also the whole bit that that whole narrative about there being a secret um, extra civilization, you know, that's a secret space program where our astronauts have have gone to other planets, and so this is part of you know, so there's like the secret extra government that's kind of off world, you know, um, it's just. You know it's bizarre, <laughs> but but at least she keeps she keeps track of things. You know she keeps track of of people hearing those strange sounds coming out of the sky, and those strange explosions that no one can those booms that no one can explain, and she keeps track of another phenomenon which I keep track of too, which is really disturbing to me. Is I don't know if you've heard of it, is the half cat phenomena. Um, it's I've never a, heard of the half cat. Yeah, look that up. That is really disturbing. It occurs in, and she's got like in her Earth Files thing. She's got like a huge file on it, but it occurs mostly in suburban or semi-rural areas, um, and it happens in clusters where all of a sudden, um, people's pets, their cats in particular, will will disappear. Um, and then the and then the animals will will be found again, but they will be found in a play. They will be found in these. Uh, I'll put it this way: they're obviously placed to be found. Okay, so they'll be like in the middle of a sidewalk, or somebody's driveway, or somebody's front yard, and they'll be cleanly cut in half, like like oh, with wow. a machete, cleanly cut in half. Most was like a black dahlia thing or something. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes both halves are there, and sometimes only the back or the front half is there. But but both halves or just the one whatever half is there is cleaned out, like cleaned out. There's no blood. It's like cleaned out, and um, um, and and what's very odd about it is that frequently the cat will be seen. And then will be found in that condition, like within a time frame that is too close. You know what I mean? It's like the cat will be seen and then an hour and a half later will be found. But but it will be seen and found in a public setting. Mm-hmm. So it's like, but nobody has seen it disappear or, you know what I mean? It's, yeah, very, yeah, yeah. it's very odd. And, and they happen in clusters. So... And there are some communities that seem to get it more like for, I think it's San Antonio, Texas has had several, um, several kind of flaps of these. Um, they happen in the UK um, and she keeps track of where they happen all over the world um, because she loves cats. And so it's something that really bothers her. Right? I mean, so uh, if you go to earth files, if I mean, I, I belong to her earth files just so I get some of this information um, and you can, she has a whole file that's just on half cats. You can like do a search on half cats oh, and it will come up. Kind of spookery is that? It's really, it's really messed up. 
it's really messed up. Yes. But um, so so that's why I follow her because she actually keeps track of stuff like that and keeps track of the patterns of it. But you know, her explanations are kind of weird sometimes. But uh, I don't, you know, it's fine. I don't, I don't have to agree with somebody to appreciate yeah. data collection. Yeah, yeah, no, I know what you're saying. I kind yeah. of feel that way about like Maury Terry, who, I mean, I think a lot of his conclusions are just outrageous and totally misguided, but I mean, he did chronicle some interesting stuff though, even if I, I think his conclusions are pretty off base. Right. Right. Well, and that's, that's okay. You know, it's like, um, you know, John Keel, um, he was kind of a nut too, but he, he was the person who really kind of said, you know, if you, if you want to get it, a clue as to what uh, the kind of like the scope of this stuff. You, I mean, he's the guy that first came up with the idea that I'm aware of that first came up with the idea that basically what you need to do is you need to have, you have need to have some way of get of finding out um, where all you getting all these sightings or you know, UFO sightings as an example, and just putting them all in a database and then finding out like, looking at the larger patterns like you know while this is happening over here then you know and he that's just what he discovered while this is happening over here say in new mexico at 2 p.m whatever then at approximately the same time even given the time change in another area um like on the east coast a, a an almost identical thing will will appear you know what I mean? So, and, and to try to figure out what the pattern of all that stuff is. And you'd have to have a huge database and, you know, create some kind of modeling around that. Um, and he, and he figured out those patterns by belonging to about, you know, I don't know how many news clipping services and putting this stuff all, all over his, all over his apartment, you know, so that he could sort it out and look at it. But that's the kind of thing that, you know, if, 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 if there's any kind of, um, you know, if it's a natural, if some of this stuff is a natural phenomenon, um, then that can help you find the patterns to that. But if some of this is stuff that's being deployed, you know what I mean? That can help find out if, what patterns might exist with that as well, you know, because because yeah. I, I kind of think I've, I've come to think that at least I think that there's two things going on. This is my opinion. Two things going on. I think that there are phenomenon, phenomena, um, because some of this stuff pre-exists our technology. Mm. So I think that there are phenomena, and that, but a lot of what um, our intelligence services and other, you know, these other, all the alphabet people that you have at the beginning of your book, a lot of what they're trying to do is either understand and control it, or create it in some way. But, but occasionally, they'll run into it. You know what yeah. I mean? They'll mm -hmm. run into it, and they'll realize, oh, it can't really be controlled in the manner we'd like. You know what I mean? It exists sort of on its own. So I think that there's two things going on, you know, um, one which is manufactured and is, is used as, you know, may dip into whatever the you know, the original thing was in order to try to get people to believe certain things. Um, but, but there is something that exists on its own without our interference. 
Yeah. And I mean, for me, writing the, you know, this book, and I mean, obviously the next two, which I've already got a good decent chunk of finished, it's just, you know, it was like trying to really just ascertain uh, whether or not a lot of these people in the security services really believed the stuff right. or if it was just a, you know, a kind of ongoing game with them. I mean, it's like with the case of a guy like Lansdale, you know, you sort of lean towards the, uh, the sense that he was definitely using this as a game, that he kind of found it to be humorous or something. But then it's like, you know, again, kind of going back to this Charles Bohannon guy, mm -hmm. uh, I looked at a lot of letters that he and Lansdale sent to each other. And there's just weird stuff where like Bohannon would like doodle these, you know, Masonic all seeing eyes and some of these other sort of like symbols on the letters with no explanation at all. And it's almost sort of like there's this sort of little code that they're using to each other in a few of these cases. Um, there's just other things that you find in his notes where it does give you the sense that the guy really did believe that there was some other thing as well that you were trying to tap into with some of this stuff. And I mean, that kind of continues on when you look at guys like Aquino and Alexander, and it's just sort of um, an ongoing question of uh, where sort of uh, operation ends and where the reality begins and it seems like if anything they've really tried uh, quite an extent to try to blur the lines of all of that as the years have gone on which is in and of itself quite fascinating right yeah well that's what i mean i think that i think that there <laughs> is i think that sometimes you know i think that there are and there are different types of belief you know i mean it's like I think it's it's really possible to believe that there's something because you've had certain experiences, you know, you've had certain things happen, but not necessarily know what it is. Um, and and so you do play with it. You know, there are there are people who I happen to know some of them who who do that all the time. It's not always a wise thing to do that. I don't think because if I mean. It's not that I think whatever it is is going to like get pissed off at you necessarily, but you can freak yourself out. You know what I mean? You can really screw yourself up in so in some ways, you know. And if you look at something, what happened to Benowitz, you know, if 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 you're already inclined in that way, it's not that difficult for others to dick with you. Yeah. And I mean, I think we're definitely seeing that on an enormous scale uh, going into the 21st century, the rise of social media and a lot of this other stuff. You know, as I kind of said before, I mean, I think a lot of this was later brought into the Q community. And uh, again, obviously, we're still seeing the ongoing operations and sort of the ufologists and the new waves or new age circles. But, uh, you know, again, inevitably, you end up with a lot of unstable individuals in these groups and even uh, maybe even more mainstream groups that have been targeted um i'm thinking specifically at the gamer community right uh, this is something that i'm going to get into again more in the you know in the future books but gamers have definitely been a major target going all the way back to uh gamergate 2013 2014 and it seems like there has been sort of this ongoing attempt to radicalize a lot of individuals in these circles but again you know i mean not to uh throw out too many stereotypes but i would certainly say that um there are a fair amount of people who uh you know have issues with autism and other um you know, psychological problems in the gamer community who uh could be taken advantage of in that regard You're right exactly well yeah i mean that well they tend to be introverts mm -hmm. um and um and 
a, you know, if they don't have any other life, you know, wh whatever they are, whether they're, they're on the spectrum or, you know, they just have other issues or whatever, or, you, could, or, you know, even people that start out relatively normal, whatever normal is, I'm not even sure I know what that is anymore, but, um, yeah. you know, if you get too isolated into your own little world, um, again, it's not that hard. I mean, if you, if you look at, if you look at some of the, uh, I mean, there are lots, I mean, you know this, there are lots of stories about uh, people who have written their memoirs about having been drawn into a cult and, and then finally, and realizing what was going on and then getting out of it. You know, I mean, I went through a period of my life when I was much younger where very inadvertently I got drawn into a group and it wasn't like a big cult or anything. It was, it was, it was, uh, you know, it was just a, a married couple that had sort of amassed a little bit of a spiritual following. And, um, you know, I got kind of caught up with them for a little while until I figured out that basically they were just trying to, they were just trying to recruit people to do labor for them for, you know, for various of their, various of their economic projects, you know? So, um, but you know, it turned out that, you know, the woman, the woman who ran this group, you know, she, she had, she had studied silver mind control and she had, she had studied all of these, these techniques uh, of, of, uh, of, tr of trying to influence people, you know, and some, some kind of dark stuff, actually. She just wasn't real good at it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I just happened to be in a vulnerable place in my life. I got myself out of it, but it was, you know, you don't, you don't, it depends on where, who you are and where you are. You know, lots of people can be drawn into this kind of thing. In fact, you know, what I, my understanding, you know, when I, when I got, you know, I had to take a bunch of sociology courses when I was getting my PhD and, you know, various studies have shown that, you know, a third, if you have a regular population, almost a third of those people um, and any given population might be susceptible to stuff like this. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's also sort of like the thing with hypnosis, like what is it? One out of every five people or one out of every four, something like that is a good hypnotic subject, right. which in and of itself doesn't seem like it's that uh, high of a number, but again, it's 20% of the population or something. So well, right. Well, right. And that's, that's enough. That's enough to create. Yeah. It creates social issues. It, 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 yeah, because it doesn't, you know, most social changes are not caused by lots of people. They're caused mm -hmm. by a few people in a, in a few places um, because most people are just kind of like going along with it. You know what I mean? Just go, you know, they're just, they, they, they're, they're, they're just trying to survive. So they're not, they're not really interested in making change. They're just interested in surviving, you know, but and this is, you know, really fundamentally a big part of why I decided to write these books because of obviously the fact that we are in a situation, especially skyrocketing rates of mental health and so forth, where, you know, people are vulnerable to these kinds of movements. And fundamentally, I think that a lot of it goes down to 
the whole notion of narrative and really storytelling. Mm -hmm. I think that this is something that we don't really conceive of as a magical act, but fundamentally it is. And it's it generally, is. this is why the arts have been recognized uh, as a spiritual practice in many cultures for centuries now. Um, but yeah, I mean, and this is something that I do think that a lot of the people in the intelligence services were aware of. And they were very much practicing this and using uh, the whole process of storytelling and narrative creation as a way of fundamentally shaping and even altering reality. And they weren't the only group. They weren't the first group to do it, certainly. And this is what I'm going to get into in the second book is really uh, tracing the sort of contemporary history of this, going back to Rosicrucianism and uh, bringing things up into the you know modern era with all kinds of exotic characters like the White Chapel Club, the Fortians, and then of course the Discordians and a lot of these other groups. But again, it is so fundamental and it goes back to the whole, I guess, notion of abracadabra, which uh, means uh, as I speak, I create. Mm -hmm. And this is what we always do with the stories that we, uh, that we put together. And this is something that the intelligence services have been trying to do. And it's something that a lot of other actors have been trying to do. And um, fundamentally, we've now gotten to the point where I think there are so many competing and counter narratives, especially with the rise of the Internet and technology and so forth, that it has led to total breakdown of consensus reality. And, you know, going forward, that's really going to be, I think, the challenge is trying to navigate how we do this and how we exist in this kind of world. And uh, one thing I want to add is that uh, a lot of the alien underground basis stuff seems like it comes out of the exopolitics Kool-Aid situation with that. I know a lot of it seems like that's the root of it. Well, it's funny how it's being rebranded now. Uh, I know somebody was just telling me that in the quote-unquote patriot community, there's now like this big narrative about how there's this massive like world war that's being carried out right now and like all of these underground bases and what have you. I was just hearing about this a couple of nights ago and I was like, oh my God, this is so much like a whole thing with the Dulce base stuff and some of the other things where it's like I was just saying, you know, the Delta Force is being sent down into the underground bases and they're engaged with the gray aliens and this <laughs> heavy, you know, struggle right now. And now, like, now, yeah. and now, now it's been like totally like shifted to like, no, no, now the Delta forces down there and they're fighting the chinese in the underground bases because world yeah. war three is upon us now. <laughs> <laughs> if you look at mike michael sala and uh alfred weber alfred weber hates me i don't really know michael sala but i know he has stuff like this lady uh, elena dannon that channels the palladians all that crap oh, but God, he, he does this one show he claims it's this military person named jd or something that's a special forces and he goes down to florida and meets with the ant people and they gave him a special tree of life and he like really has whole shows about this shit and i don't listen to him i just see the titles i listen to the kawani one because i know kawani the, the sasquatch dude and that was good but some of these people should be writing alien sasquatch erotica on amazon like they I think, probably do actually <laughs> i think they they hide but i think some channeling you know so there's something to some of that stuff like bashar and seth speaks and stuff there's something to it but i mean seriously they seem like you, they just make up stuff 
Well, I mean, there's like already, you know, there's like the overlap with like the MUFON people and the Q groups. And again, that also brings in the Watkins and just all the weird porn oh, stuff so that they're gross. involved. So this is what, what I'm saying. They probably are actually somewhere feeding the internet with this kind of stuff. God knows that it already seems like they're doing it with like kitty porn through things like the Order yeah. of the Nine Angles and what have you. Why not Sasquatch porn? It would fit uh, right in, right? Already, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> there's come for Bigfoot. I don't know if it's still on Amazon, but it's like com but uh anyway uh mufon that dude was caught looking at like underage girls or something then there was another yeah, one yeah. venture that was like talking about black people terribly and they don't care they just stick them back in there and keep it going just crazy yeah it's scary man and i know i've seen a lot of headlines lately with crazy serial killer stuff like that's just on the rise like there was just walked by my mom's tv found some girls limbs and all this crazy crap like every time i see the headlines pop up on microsoft some new weird crazy thing like a head taken off or a body found it's like crazy this keeps getting crazier really so how many books are going to be in this series is it a trilogy yeah, hopefully two more. But again, I always seem to underestimate like how long these things are going to be. So, but I'm praying it'll just be two more books. Um, <laughs> He's praying it's going to be only two. Well, I mean, it's already taken me three and a half years to write like the one. I'm like, man, I I want to do other projects too. I mean, in fact, I'm actually probably going to try to do a sort of travel log in between like this one and the next book that's going to go into all the sites that I've toured in the last two years, sort of my like uh, variation and weird america and dark tourism also with uh some of the recipes that i've whipped up and airbnbs you know i mean how to uh cook a uh leg of lamb roast while you're tripping on lsd lots of stuff. <laughs> which i've actually done and i mir miraculously got that thing into the perfect 126 degrees and uh, we got about five minutes. Uh, it's always great to have you on, and we definitely want to get you on for every book. Uh, we enjoy it, and I always say you should do audio books. You got a deep voice, and it's, it's very mesmerizing to hear all this with it for sure. And uh, where can everybody get the book? And I mean, is it out yet, or we're waiting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's available on Amazon, of course, because yeah, like everything, it's got to be available on Amazon. So yeah, just do the RS Williams Snyder. It should pop right up there in your book search. Also, the uh, PDF version is available at the Farm's official store, which is the Farm Store. That's the farm podcast, all one word, dot store. So you just head on over there and you can get the PDF version if that's what you are so inclined for. And of course, also, I do the uh, farm podcast. There's a free episode out every Monday on uh, Apple, Spotify, a lot of the other big platforms. And I've got the Patreon where you get additional episodes, Zoom party, all kinds of other crazy stuff. So, yeah, um, you know, definitely consider some of these things. I mean, I, um, I'm actually about to do an epic Kubrick presentation building on the thing that I did for Strange Realities, which is going to be awesome. And um, it's kind of, I guess, it was fun for me to do this because it's kind of the other side of the art because I was so focused on sort of the military psychological warfare and uh, it kind of gave me a chance to look at the other side, you know, what was going on with Hollywood and with the master of this kind of stuff like Kubrick. And uh, no, I do not believe in the moon landing hoax. I mean, not to say that it may not have happened, but I don't think that Kubrick did it. I think that that has been a total uh, sleight of hand by trying to drag up all that stuff with Kubrick. 
Definitely. Well, we support your work. Anything that pisses off the system, we, we subscribe to. So, <laughs> well, I've definitely pissed off a lot of groups in my time. So good. I Ukrainians like it. and Mormons, especially. <laughs> well, and, and do you what's did you say your website? Do you have a particular uh, website? I think yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't do as much with the blog, but it's uh, the Visit blog. It's a uh, Visit View V I S U P V I E W all one word dot blogspot.com. But uh, yeah, you can definitely check that out. I've got probably several books worth of archive material there. So, you know, there's a lot of good stuff there as well. well very cool. <laughs> Keep us in the loop on the next one. And uh, I need to, I forgot to plug two things really quick. Uh, Dead Sky Publishing, they have really cool Weird West books. They just put out an anthology with Joe R. Lansdale, Al, oh, awesome. going, Al going back, a native. He's down here in Florida. If you ever haven't seen his horror, it's really good. It's OWL going back. He writes native horror. Uh, he's also friends with Joe. But uh, Dead Sky Publishing. Uh, but uh, one more book, Uthritz. Let's say Uthritz Feast Inside the World of the Last Kingdom, <laughs> a Norse recipe book of 60 recipes from the Bernard Cornwell and Susan Pollock Uthritz Feast. Can fi fix Viking food at home. There's nothing wrong with fixing Viking food. <laughs> I know, food, that's man. cool. I'd like to eat it. I'm not mocking it for sure. I like it. I'm going to make Christina make it. <laughs> I'm kidding. But uh, no, the book's uh, uh, Uthred's Feast. That's U H T R E D. I'd love to try it, definitely. Uh, I just had Chinese food for days. I could eat that every day. It's so good. They have a place down here. Oh my God. But I'd love to try it the viking stuff for sure but uh we appreciate it so much it's been great thanks wham and recluse what's the what's the the history on that handle is that been a while around for a while oh yeah yeah actually i got that years ago uh back in my profane youth in florida it uh it was actually why we were tripping. Uh, one of my buddies thought I was turning into a giant spider, a brown recluse. So they started calling me recluse after that. Yeah, I'm in the panhandle of Florida, but here Graceville and Panama City Beach. And thank God we're getting some cool weather in the 40s already in October. So, so oh, wow. We're, we're up top. So, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I was in Daytona Beach. I did plenty of like Christmases where it was 95 degrees out. It sucked. It does. The summer suck here. Nope, 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 nope. That's why I live in New York. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we appreciate it so much, everybody. Have a have a good weekend, and thanks for listening. Let's United Public Radio one zero seven point seven FM, New Orleans. Me and Christina are about to do a three hour Oppenheimer. She's excited. Three hours of atom bombs. Christopher Nolan. Boom. All right. Good night. She's shaking her head no. All right. Good night, everybody. Take See care. Thanks, man. Bye -bye. Take care. Thanks, Wham. Bye.